out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. This is David Eastall. As you know, always playing the finest in indie pop. And we also love a special guest. This week, it is going to be the turn of Chumba Womba, because I spoke to one of the members very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry, and all that other groovy stuff. It is Dunstan Bruce. So, without any more chat, we'll get down to the interview. So after a few minutes of um, casual, you know, getting to know each other, we got down to the very exciting question, what that was, those early musical influences. It's a classic start. Anyway, Dunstan, save this interview. It's over to you. Enjoy. It's a good little bit of chat. Of music. Um, yeah, yeah that, there's, a, there's a couple of really early um, uh, examples I can think of, the things that had a, had a huge impact on me. One of them was um, Elton John uh, doing Your Song, um, that is one of my first memories I have of uh, of being obsessed with a particular song. Um, I was when I when I first got into music, I was into the first albums I bought were Slade, Elton John, Alice Cooper. Um, that, those were probably my first purchases of my own. And um, but we used to have uh, a dance set. And we used to get those, uh, my parents used to buy us those Top of the Pops albums. God, they're classics. And the, uh, the, one, the one that had the, the, the biggest impact on me was there was there's one that has a version of Jimi Hendrix's Voodoo Child on. And it's, um, it's uh, amazing. Yes. Well, it's, inter- it's interesting because um, for two reasons. One of the first records I remember sort of discovering was Top of the Poppers Sing the Carpenters when I was very young, and I played that obsessively, didn't realise it wasn't the Carpenters. But all those songs you know, are now ensconced in my brain. But then um, a boss, many years later, who was, who was an old hippie from the 60s, told me about that Voodoo Child version, saying it was quite extraordinary. Really? That's amazing. <laughs> it had an absolutely massive impact on me. I really, like, I, I just thought, I, I was just sort of blown away by it. I was totally blown away by, you know, the guitar solo and stuff. I just thought, this is absolutely amazing and it sort of like opened up this whole new world for me yeah and i just I just thought this is incredible what is this and it was like some sort of awakening it, it sort of had some sort of it probably tied in with some sort of sexual awakening as well actually yeah there was something about it that just felt you know um it just felt like it was a, a it was a door to another world yeah and so I... that that really set me off yeah um uh, oh, David Bowie was, yeah, that sort of led me to, like, the, uh, David Bowie and stuff like that. Well, that was so quite, when the first album. Yes, well, it was quite interesting because it was, um, I remember Alice Cooper doing Schools Out, which, you know, it was probably 73, which kind of my parents absolutely hated and obviously we all loved, which which was yeah, one of those moments. Absolutely. And, yeah. um and luckily for me, because I was, you know, a huge fan of Gary Glitter at the time, but thankfully my first single was Space Oddity by David Bowie, and that was like, jeezy, crazy. I missed one. Oh, wow. I think I think my first single was Cause I Love You by Slade. Oh, well, then that, that's, that's not too bad. So then, you know, were you kind of at all musical at that stage? Were you in choirs? No. 
No. Oh God, no. I would I would still not describe myself as musical, to be honest. Um, I, um, I I desperately wanted to learn to play guitar um, from quite from about the age of thirteen, but then that 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 sort of never really happened. But then when punk came along, um, I bought a really really cheap, horrible, nasty electric guitar and uh, tried to teach myself how to play it Excellent. because obviously that by that point um uh, it became that door that that was a massive explosion and that door was blown wide open that anybody could be in a band and that was a fantastic liberating feeling that yes. um it didn't matter how brilliant you were it was all it was just to do with your um determination to try and express yourself in some sort of way so that was um, that was when i first um thought right i can do this you know because like up until that point um, as much as much as I, I, I would say that I was, uh, you know, listening to David Bowie and Elton John and Slade or whatever, and Alice Cooper, I was also listening to, you know, um, Led Zeppelin or Rush or Yes and stuff like that. So, and that sort of music felt as uh, it was another world. It was mm. like a sort of a, um, that, that it was a world that I would never be privy to, and I could never possibly attain those sort of. Uh, levels of skill that um you know that i was sort of like um bamboozled by in a way yeah but then when punk came on, well actually just before punk you know i sort of i was i, sort of, I remember seeing dr feelgood on some uh, tea time program up in the northeast and they absolutely blew me away i thought that wow this is amazing i didn't even I, you know i knew nothing about you know, uh, rhythm and blues and, and and garage rock and all that sort of stuff. And they sort of opened that door a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then um, when punk happened, it just went absolutely mental. And then that's the first time I thought, right, I'm going to be in a band. Yes, because it's interesting because I've got an older brother who's seven years older and he was definitely into the prog rock world. And he, you know, because my parents didn't have a record player for, you know, because it was one of those classic kind of working class families you know who were you know from the countryside so they you know when they got married they had to sell everything you know record player and records and everything and then slowly introduced things back in the 60s and 70s and I remember the record player came in and my brother had two records it was the Beatles by uh, Sergeant Pepper and the and it was Elton John's uh, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road which I I again yeah he forbid me to play the That's records right, yeah. so I had to sneak into his room Goodbye, when he wasn't there and play them and uh, that that yeah. was kind of my moment. So uh, that that was quite interesting. But he also had yes, Genesis, Wishbone, Ash, Barkley, James Harvest, which I I yeah. absolutely consumed with great enthusiasm. But again, like you, you just thought, cheesy, crazy. How do you you can't you know these people are gods? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It just seemed a completely unattainable uh, 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 world that was uh, beyond. That was completely and utterly beyond me. Yes. Um, and I, I saw I had no sense. I had no sense of ambition at that age. And I grew up in a house that had we had no music or books in um, in our house at all. It was sort of like a working class, aspiring middle class sort of household where. Um, uh, you know, books were, were sort of like just something you got out of the library every so often, and music was uh, was just like was not part of uh, of my my growing up. So I always had to sort of discover music myself, uh, and you know, go hunting for stuff and find. You know, it was all through your your peers, all through your friends that I found. You know, that I found music. Yes. So, because and then obviously I know this is a real cliche, but obviously you know, like 
I did that classic thing of listening to Radio Luxembourg in bed late at night. And then, you know, and then I uh, moved on to, you know, listening to John Peel. So it's just I did that classic thing that, you know, a lot of people did. That's right. Yes. Which takes us as we, we, we truck into the, the 80s, because a lot of bands I've interviewed, the, the, the early 80s, there was a lot of unemployment. And so people were, you know, I mean, being unemployed then didn't seem such a big thing. And it was almost like, oh, yes, you're just going to do two years of unemployment and that's fine. But then, you know, Thatcher brought in, you know, the Job Seekers Allowance and Enterprise Allowance. So that gave a lot of people, you know, like almost a, a year, didn't it? A grant for a year to do, to make yeah. up anything, to be self-employed from being a writer, musician, an artist so did and so so yeah so so the cliche which i sort of realized i didn't have that at the beginning was that um yeah most bands have a five-year narrative they have that kind of 12 months getting together while being quite young and stone you know getting the single john peel played at john peel session first album things going well so that so so you sort of formed in that very early 80s period sort of between one yeah. of the world that is post-punk to to sort of almost indie pop to try and label some sort of movement there so when when the band started to form did you feel yeah. like a kind of a solid a solid unit that you were on a mission? Well, what happened was um, a lot of the other people in Chimwamba were from Burnley and I met them in Leeds um, through putting an advert in a shop window, um, as you did back then. <clears throat> and I met Boff through that and then, uh, then, then one thing led to another and we ended up, I ended up being part of his band, which was the beginnings of, uh, of Chimbawamba. Um, we were at that point, I remember the advert I put up in the, in a shop window was, as we talked about, uh, influences being stuff like, uh, wire and fire engines. And, um, he was a massive fall fan at the time. And, uh, uh, Patrick Fitzgerald was big in, uh, big in his life and stuff like that. So when me and Boff met, we had a lot of things um, in common. We found a lot of things in common that we had. And um, so when Chumwamba first started, it was very much about um, <clears throat> having this idea that we didn't want to do what, what, the, what our previous generation had done. And we didn't. And we basically just didn't want to be normal. Um, but then we discovered uh, Crass, and they uh, had an, uh, they had an enormous impact on us. Um, we became vegetarians overnight. We declared ourselves anarchists overnight. We found a, we found this huge house, uh, this huge house that we squatted in West Leeds, in Armley, in Leeds, and we all moved into this house. So it became a way of life, and we did do all those things. We all signed on. Um, we, we did enterprise allowance schemes um, and we found those, you know, we found those cracks to, to have the time and the energy to put into getting the band off the ground. Yes. And yeah, and forming, you know, slowly forming our ideas. And um, in those early days, we, we, we would, you know, watch and, and, and see what crafts were doing. And quite often we would sort of uh, do a northern version of that in a way. Um, but then, uh, but then we pretty soon broke away from that idea. But that was our launch pad, in a way, into how we worked, and we always worked collectively as well. Yes. So, was there any uh, on the musical talent front? Who who were the musicians or the or the songwriters? Um, we'd always we'd always shared all the responsibilities and all the all different roles. So some 
some people were writers and some people were musicians um, and some people were organizers um, and some people were singers, you know, so it, all those sort of things all blended together. So it wasn't that there was, um, it wasn't that there was one singer songwriter who would turn up with a song to a rehearsal, you know, we would sort of work through different ideas, you know, so somebody would turn up with some lyrics or somebody would turn up with a bass line, or somebody would turn up with a musical idea, you know, a melody or something. And then we would all sort of work out how we could incorporate everybody's particular talents into the music. Yeah. Because um, I can only speak for myself, really, that I wouldn't describe myself as particularly musical. And I know that Alice wouldn't describe herself as particularly musical. But we we had you know, skill sets that fitted into, you know, we could write and we could perform, which in those early days was a lot about making a, you know, making a fool of yourself in a way, um, in, in what we, in what we would do live. But, um, it was like, it was bringing all those things together. So it was a very much a collective, um, effort. Um, Boff was, was, maybe uh someone who was really really good at bringing all those different elements together and working out how it could all work as one um but that was that was still a sort of collective process um so someone like harry who was uh, who who joined when he was about 15 16 he moved from barnsley Harry was an absolutely, even at that age, he was an amazing drummer, you know. So he brought, he didn't write lyrics for Chumbawamba, but he brought a musicality to the band that we had never before had, you know. So it was it was tapping into different people's skills all the time. Yes. And also, I mean, one thing that I noticed and, and sort of now become more aware of is that you had those gatekeepers, which... Which are sort of it's both good and bad, but at least then you know you had sort of someone like John Peel. The sort of John Peel play was kind of huge, and um, you know the NME was big at Melody Maker, Record Mirror, and Sounds and stuff like that. And also there was quite a network of gigs around in places that always had an indie night or punk night, some sort of event that would be taking place on a Monday or Wednesday night. So that that kind of helped a lot of bands to sort of get sort of noticed and sort of um, yes to sort Weird. of play in front of a different audience than just their friends. Weirdly, and fans. because. Because we were part of this anarcho punk movement, um, we uh, in the in those early years, from about eighty one, eighty two to about eighty four, eighty five, we only played benefit gigs. That's all we did. We just played benefit gigs all over the country, um, and we would just do it for expenses. Um, and so, and the, that but that was a network. That was a huge, huge underground network that we were part of. So we we did our we did our developing as a band in that net in that you know in that network. And if you look at really early uh, uh, or listen to very very early recordings of Chumbawamba, it's really rough and ready. But we were trying to do something that was uh, you know we were influenced by bands like Bonzo Dog Doodah Band or the first couple of Frank Zappa albums, as as well as listening to you know punk and stuff like that and post punk stuff. So we were sort of bringing all these different elements together, but we were doing it on this anarcho-punk circuit in a way, which was like doing a lot of squat gigs or social centres. Yes. And it was um, uh, the first time we ever did a paid gig. Um, 
was when we'd been we got caught fixing the electricity at our at our squat and we got caught by the electricity board and we got uh, we got like a i don't know it was something like we had to pay 600 quid um so we did so it was the first time we had to do a gig just for ourselves so we built up we built up this massive following on the underground before we sort of became people became aware of us um, because of John Peel in a way, because we did that, uh, we had a single, our first single that he really loved, and it did really well in a in a in a Peel festive fifty, and so that's how we that's how we first you know we that's how we started to broaden our horizons uh, and become known. When we when we released this uh, first seven inch single, we got absolutely uh, hammered by loads of people in the narco punk scene because they thought we were selling out. By releasing a single, by releasing vinyl, and it not being like a, a, a cassette or something. <laughs> oh, the good old days. Because the musical scene at that point was quite interesting, well, vaguely. You had that kind of the indie scene and, and the, the stuff that was being played on Peel. But then the mainstream had that kind of horrendous Trevor Horn-esque sort of sound you know, engineering, <laughs> wasn't it? So it was quite kind of when you watch those kind of classic top of the pop things from the 80s, I always yeah. find it's quite shocking to think, gee, oh, yes, I forgot that was all about the mainstream, you know, Dave, um, Steve Wright in the afternoon, Simon Bates, big hair, big shoulder pads, lots of balloons and everyone looking incredibly happy. And then, yeah. you know, there was me on the other side being all angsty and insecure. So, so, um, and then you had that whole political, you had the red wedge movement and, and everyone was um, getting into the SWP and Eaton TVP and all that kind of stuff. So did you, did you sort of, did you feel like you weren't even part of the indie scene that, that had started to sort of develop in the sort of early eighties with people like, you know, it started with people like Echo and the Bunnymen, but it was really the Smiths when they hit in '83, and then you had the June Brides and and the, the, yeah, it, we weren't we weren't part of that. We weren't part of that music movement at at all. We were we were on a completely different um, circuit or level where we were doing lots of benefit. We were just playing endless endless benefits around the country. And then we met up with uh, do you know uh, do you know a Dutch band called the X? Yes, vaguely. So we met up with them in the, in in the, in about eighty five eighty six maybe and started to start to play uh, started to do a lot of European. We first went to Europe with them and did a lot of tours with them and that sort of again that opened up our uh, our sort of our fan base I suppose in a way because it, that exposed us to a whole new world of uh, you know this this. Uh, uh, independent underground scene in Europe as well on the continent, which was incredible. You know all the social centres that 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 existed all across uh, uh, Europe was just it was just really mind blowing, uh, and so that really expanded our um, you know our our reach. And then we and then we met up with do you know the Dogface Hermans? God, yeah, I've, 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 it's more of a, a more of a band that I remember John Peel mentioning, and yeah, they, they were they were we we sort of did we then did a lot of stuff with them as well. So so we sort of started um, in the in the in the mid to late eighties. We started gradually to become more part of you know the independent scene because um, you know we would get the occasional review or article in a music paper. Uh, do you remember the music journalist uh, Seething Wells? Oh God, yes. Well, he championed us. He was a massive fan of us. He was from Brad Bradford, and we were based in Leeds, and so we used to see quite a lot of him. Does he uh, go as the legend? 
Is that the same guy as the legend? No, no, the legend is someone else. I think the legend lives in Brighton now, actually. Oh. But um, <laughs> you know, I remember, I remember when uh, James Brown, you know, used to have this fanzine called Attack on Bazag in Leeds. Yes. You know, you know, was so there was people like him, you know, there was people like him knocking around, and Swells was amazing, you know, because he really stuck up for us and really put his neck out, you know, because he used to get slaughtered by his mates at uh, the NME for, you know, for being a Chumbawamba fan. Yeah, because because at the time in Leeds you had a huge goth uh, scene, and yeah, was, and then you in Bradford you had people like the New Model Army and Jules the yeah. Poet. Everyone, there were so many poets. But um, so did you, so how did you fit in or not fit in with sort of this huge goth scene? Because Leeds must have been quite the, you know, painted black. To, to... We, we sort of existed alongside it in a way. Um, we, we sort of, um, you know, we, was, we sort of knew the wedding present or we knew could or we sort of knew, you know, other bands that were like sort of um, vaguely on the scene and we, our paths would cross occasionally. Like, I think, did we do a, we might have even done a minor's benefit with Wedding Present once or something like that. You know, so we met, we started to meet all these people, but they were on, and at, at, at the time in Leeds, there was a, uh, the, particularly in the mid to late 80s and early 90s, there was a, there was the Duchess. Oh, uh, yes, yes. Duchess of York. Yeah. Everybody used to go to the Duchess of York. It was an amazing venue. It was the Bull and Gate of Leeds, wasn't it? From the Bull and yeah. Gate in London. <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah. yeah. Everybody used to... And so everybody everybody you could think of had played at the Duchess. Absolutely everybody. And and friends of ours were uh, promoters there, had this company called Flame in Hand, and they used to, they used to put on all, you know, all American hardcore bands who all came over. You know, they all played at the Duchess. So, so again, we first went to America in the late 80s, I think. Um, and then and that opened up another world to us of, um, you know, America, you know, all that whole American hardcore scene that we uh, we we sort of crossed over with. And, you know, so we became really good mates with uh, Ian Mackay and Fugazi. And, and played with them a few times in the nineties. Yes, because during the eighties, okay, you do, you do, you've got these, you've got, I don't know, the English Rebel songs. Do you count that as one of them? Yes, it does, really, doesn't it? But you did, you did pictures of starving children. Never mind the ballads, and then before, and then you got the slap, and then you did that other one. Did you? Um, I mean, because most bands, okay, have a five-year narrative, you know, and I probably mentioned it. By the second album, you know, things aren't going terribly well. And the other thing is, well, there's two other things. If anybody ever does America, they often come back and say, and then we split up. And the uh. other, and there was also when the, there was a musical scene that changed in the eighties. You know, like a lot of those indie bands that I loved suddenly got to 87, 88 and they'd been together five years so that wasn't quite enough they had made no money and they all hated each other and then everyone wanted rave music all then it was grunge wasn't it So they yeah. and they couldn't get a review to save their life and they thought well I just want to get away from these people that I've been in a band with and get a job So, but you managed to sort of go through the 80s and still pluck away even though you know and you'd done America so how did you manage to keep together? Um I think we had a, I think we had a very very strong sense of what we wanted to be and what we wanted to achieve and you know we all lived together we all yes. lived in one this one big house together and that in itself was a, a really um um I mean that was a challenging pro that was a challenging thing in a way because not only you're in a band together you're actually living together so you with you with each other 24/7 um so it was um but we, but our, but we had, a, we we had such a strong sense of um, 
of our uh, political um, ideals that we wanted to um, express through our music. And um, we we all were uh, all had that that desire to express ourselves creatively and not uh, and not just get a, a, a normal Joe job, I suppose. Yes. But so we all worked. You know, we all had like we all had like part time jobs doing like uh, quite often quite mundane things. But that was all to, to because our one desire was to keep Chumbawamba going. Um, because we 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 completely believed in it as an idea, um, and and yeah, I mean, and and there was always things that came along that that took it onto the next step. Like um, we went to Japan in about 1989, and we just got invited by these by these Japanese punks, and we hadn't done anything for about a year or something, and we just thought, yeah, let's go to Japan. Why would we not go to Japan? And just the little things like that spurred us on, you know. And then somebody paid for us to go and do a tour of the west coast of uh, of the United States. So we thought, yeah, why why shouldn't we do that? Let's go and do that. Mm-hmm. And all those little things just sort of, it always felt as though we were like getting, you know, we always felt as though it was forward motion, I suppose. Yes. We never felt so. And, so- and, and I think what we did as well is we always tried to make each album different from the previous one. So that was always a challenge in itself. So having done Nevermind the Ballads to then do English Rebel songs was incre- you know was like you could either describe that as being incredibly brave or incredibly stupid but it was just that we had this idea that we always wanted to do something different yeah. and then we went on to do slap which was if you listen to that album now it's just really obvious that we were listening to uh, Paul Oakenfold and Andrew Weatherall remixes of everything that was going on at the time because we've just completely assimilated that in a, into our music so we were always looking for where our what our next thing would be, you know, what we would use and how we would use it, um, and we were so really tight. We were a tightly knit gang as well, you know, because we had a lot of, you know, we used to get raided by the police quite a lot, and that sort of that sort of, and we used to go on demonstrations a lot, and that sort of solidarity and companionship you get from that sort of thing, um, you know puts you in good stead for being in a band together as well, I suppose. Yes. Well, I, I guess you could look back at when you look at the your, the discography as your um, English Rebel songs as your sort of low album, you know, the Brian Eno experiment. <laughs> <laughs> sort of, you know, you can just, as, as Brian Eno said to Bowie, you know, like no one's going to die, so let's experiment and then come back. But um, <laughs> now everyone loves it, don't they? But then as you truck into the 90s, I mean, again, it's quite... I mean, shared living, it's tricky, isn't it? We, we start yeah. out thinking it's a good okay. idea. And then, and I think it was Throbbing Gristle, where did the, was it Throbbing Gristle, where they all threw their clothes into a box each night and just picked up whatever they, who was, you know, who was the first <laughs> up. Did it, did it become a bit weird, though? Do you all, you know, because mostly everyone starts to hate each other on the smallest detail. So, yeah, I would say, I would, yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean like, there was times where, you know, like somebody would be like, I mean, uh, you know, somebody would move out because they would, just didn't suit them anymore. And that was fine. You know, that was absolutely fine. It was, uh, um, you know, it was just like somebody was like, right, I've sort of had enough of this. You know, I need to do something else now. And so they would so they would move out or somebody would, you know, meet somebody, you know, would meet a partner, you know, a new partner and would decide to, to you know, go and live with them instead. It, but it was very, you know, it was very sort of fluid existence, I suppose, you know, and, and the house was still the hub. You know, because that's where we rehearsed and it's where we had all lived. So it still was very much, even if somebody moved out, it was still that the house was the centre of all activity. 
Um, I'm not saying that. It, it, I mean, it was it was difficult at times, and not and people fell out, and you know, people. Um, but we always, but we always managed to resolve those sort of things. Yes, and you know, various, you know, various people, you know, had relationships with other people within the band and that, and some, some of those are still going to this day, you know. But um, it, it was, it, it was um, a belief in uh, at that point and an idea of living that we had that was very, very strong, and we just sort of believed in it and thought we could make it work. That when people did, did, did when things did go wrong. Um, we were always determined to, uh, you know, to work it out. Nice, nice. We did try, you know, once we did try this thing in the 80s, in the early 80s, which we never did again, where we all sat down and told each other what we really thought of them. Oh, excellent. Yeah. And it was absolutely excruciating. <laughs> it was absolutely dreadful. And we never, ever did it again. I think we all came out of it just feeling awful. <laughs> <laughs> we went into this meeting and you were all like, right, everybody has to be completely honest with each other. And we were. And it was just awful. It was just like there was just tears. And it, it wasn't people weren't angry. People were just upset. And we just thought, look, let's just be nice to each other and accept that each other has faults, you know, and you've just got to deal with that. So, you know, you've got to, that you can't. It was basically that idea that, you know, when you go into a relationship and you think, Right, I love this person. I really fucking love this person. And then about after a couple of years, you think this there's a couple of things that really irritate me about them now. And you think, can I change those things? And you either decide that you're gonna try and change them, that never works, or you think, All right, I've got to accept that there's certain things about this person that don't actually that I don't actually enjoy that much, but there's too much other stuff that I do really love about this person that I'm gonna persevere. And so that's what we that's what we decided to do, to do. Yes, I do. I remember watching one of those um, documentaries I love on BBC Four on a Friday. You know, bands re reforming, and uh, they, they were talking to the police, Stuart Copeland, and uh, oh, yeah. when they reformed, you know, obviously there was a lot of money involved, and he was saying everyone was having a good time apart from him and Sting, so they had to have band therapy to to get them <laughs> through the rest of the tour. A band therapy was the only thing that kind of, but then you know, I think it was like let's just get to the end of the tour, pick up the check, and we'll just yeah. say goodbye. So that kind of worked. That Metallica documentary is brilliant for that. What was the one with the therapist? Some kind of monster where they get a therapist in. Oh, the therapist who then wants to be part of the band. He makes, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he makes Yoko. Yeah. It makes Yoko look completely like quiet, just like well, she's always just in the corner looking quiet. Whereas he was like, oh, I think we yeah. should have some. I could have some ideas on this. And it was like Jesus. How the other yeah. members of the band didn't kill him. I mean, it was like the Spinal Tap girlfriend wanting the jumpers. Yeah, it? yeah, it, it was. was like, he was really upset when they decided they didn't want him anymore. It was so funny. Yeah, and I thought you were. <laughs> therapist you know you still you have no awareness you have no yeah. awareness as a therapist you, <laughs> he did it, it's not, it's not. <laughs> you know it was amazing but look then it takes us because then you know as i said um a little bit earlier about you know musical scenes changing so you had that grunge thing that really knocked out of bands as well as the ecstasy but then brit pop and then you brought out your fifth album which started to yes you started to get kind of your sound was getting a bit more pop-tastic wasn't it yeah 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 yeah, it was. Yeah, we had we went through a sort of uh, dance beaty phase, I think, and then uh, with slap in particular, and then came back to this idea that um, we wanted to be um, uh, a bit more eclectic in what we did with an album, 
And so, um, are you are you talking about Shh now? I'm yes, sure. that was yeah, not your '92 album, which was yeah. the one which was Jesus H Christ, but yes, but, yeah, but yeah. Sort of, uh, so by then we were like really into we we sort of uh, done that Jesus H Christ uh, bootleg thing, which is all which was as you know getting into sort of like getting into sampling and using other people's tunes, um, and then Shh came out of that. Um, because we couldn't release Jesus Age Christ as a proper album, and and I think by then, I think we'd really started to um, think about the performance element of the band a lot, a, a lot, and so I think um, I think it became live. I think that was probably those years between about ninety two, ninety four, ninety five. We really worked on the theatrical element of how we presented our music. And that it wasn't just this one style of music all the way through, uh, and that we that we played with uh, different genres and used different ideas from from different places. Because you know there was eight people and we were a collective, so everybody was bringing their different take on uh, you know what they were into. So, um, so you know, so you'd have some people who were like listening to a lot of hip hop. You'd have other people who were listening to a lot of folk music. You know, and we so and we would actually try and blend all those different ideas. What what happened with our music a lot as well is we were limited by people's. Um, well, I'm thinking particularly actually. I'm thinking mine, Dambert, and Alice's um, musical ability, and uh, 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 particularly mine and Alice's inability to sing. Um, and so there was always this. this there was always this conundrum about how do we include. The theatricality of me, Damba, and Alice into the music, while still retaining this sort of pop sensibility about what about what we were doing. So there was so there was like there was different elements always pulling in different directions, because the singers in the band were the musicians and not the and not the front people. If you see what I mean. So it was a it was a strange mix that. Um, that me, Alice and Dambert were quite often the lead vocal on a song, but we were always performing rather than singing in a way. Yes. Were you were you kind of inspired by Chuck D? Were, was, were you thinking, that could be me? <laughs> I better rap. I, I can't. That's, I, a lo- that's a lovely, lovely comparison, but I never, I never really thought it. I think I was more worried about being the Bez in the band than anything, to be honest. <laughs> yes. I never aspired to such dizzy heights as Chuck D. Chuck I was more D. like, just as long as nobody thinks I'm the Maracas player, I'm fine. Yes, that guy in Frankie who just dances a bit behind everyone. Um, yeah. yeah. So, you, so were you? I mean, at that point, were you sort of aware of that kind of the Britpop kind of thing? Kind oh yeah, of, yeah. That yeah, was yeah, kind totally. Yeah. So that yeah, was, I don't think we incorporated that particularly in our music, but we were very, we were very passionate about um, you know all that all um, uh, what was going on music musically. Um, uh, I I I um, I don't want to sound really unpopular or curmudgeonly in that, but I don't think. Um, I think Britpop was fun at the time. I don't. I don't think it. it I don't think it spawned a form of music that was particularly uh, inventive or um, challenging or um, you know new in any way. I think it was taking a lot of old ideas and bringing them into the nineties and where, and that's fine. You know that was that was fine. I think it was sort of it was it was uh, some of it was exciting for a time. Uh, there were some bands who I think who I think wrote 
amazing pop songs. I'm thinking of someone like uh, Supergrass. I thought they were. I thought they wrote fantastic pop songs. Um, but there was a lot of other stuff that I thought was very, very derivative that did nothing for me whatsoever. Um, and so we were, and we weren't really a part of. I think we were slightly too old to be considered part of Britpop as well. Yeah. Uh, because by then we were sort of all late thirties, um, mid to late thirties. So we were a little bit too old for it, I think. Um, although we did end up finding ourselves playing loads and loads of festivals with those bands, you know, and hanging out with those bands, and um, but we were never we were never part of Britpop as no, such. No, we, we were I, like ploughed our own furrow in a way. It was weird. I think I think kind of a really sweeping statement, but I think a lot of those bands were young kids in the eighties who sort of probably, you know, like the Smiths and all those sort of bands, and then became yeah. musicians, and and they just kind of filtered from that scene and sort of basically cleared up what the C eighty six world had done. But you know, yeah. we're, we're only going to be in the indies. But it was you know it's fine. But then you know, right? Okay, in the nineties, you brought out Anarchy Swinging with Raymond. After that, which yeah. by then you were waning again, weren't you? It was kind of by Swinging with Raymond, did you feel like the band were not going to last much longer? Yeah, yeah, exactly that. Anarchy, um, I think that might be my favourite Chumbawamba album, actually, Anarchy. But um, but Swinging with Raymond, I think you can really, really tell that it's a band who have run out of ideas um, and, and a band who are struggling a little bit. Um, I felt that album was thrown together a bit. Um I think we I think we were um, thinking that just to, trying to come up with a concept for an album that one side was love and one side was hate would be enough, and it and it and it wasn't um, at the time. I think I think that album that was that album ninety five or ninety six Swinging Raymond, and I think I think that was a time when um, uh, there was a lot there was still a lot of. Um, you know, ecstasy around, and people were moving into cocaine in a big way, and I think, and and I think that album was as was as running out of ideas or treading water. The most generous is the most generous I can say about that album, and I think we realised then, at that point, with the Swinging Ruins album, that we had to make a decision about what we were were we going to carry on. Um, or were we going to knock it on the head? Yeah, because you did bring out um, a desperate live album. It was like th the Tin Machine live album, wasn't it? It was almost like show business as well, which was, <laughs> <laughs> which was like it was a bit. It was a your bit like... brutal honesty is really refreshing. <laughs> yeah, it was. Like, thanks for that backhanded compliment. Yeah, it, yeah, you're right. You're right. We were filling time. We were filling time because we didn't know what to do, and we didn't have a new idea. Yes, didn't we didn't have a new idea of what of what to do next. So we did we did basically get to a point where we had a crisis meeting, where we were like, right, what well, are we going to carry on doing this? Um, uh, at that point, uh, we uh, a couple of people left the band, and um, I nearly I remember I very nearly left. I was at that point where um, uh, I was sort of losing interest. Uh, I was taking, I was, I was, I was taking a lot of drugs at that time, and it, it wasn't. Um, I was completely distracted by that, and going out, you know, going out to clubs all the time. Um, 
So we had a crisis, you know, we sort of had a crisis meeting and said, right, well, let's decide, are we going to do another album and what's that going to be? <clears throat> and that sort of really, um, that that's what spawned, uh, you know, the uh, uh, the Tub Thumper album. Um, at that point as well, you know, we'd, we'd what was interesting was, was that we would be touring, you know, we toured for years and we did sort of notice that there was, you know, maybe slightly less people coming to see us. Because you did the, a few tours it, with people like the Levellers, who bizarrely were huge, weren't they? They were playing those arena gigs. That tour, we did a tour with the Levellers in, I think, 93 or 94. That was a massive leg up for us because we, we, we sort of picked, as they had picked up loads of New Model Army's followers from touring with them, we then picked up loads of followers from the Levellers. So 94, 95 was a good time for us. Um, uh, we were doing we were doing quite big shows. You know, we were playing to a thousand people every night around Europe, um, and it was it was and the band was succeed. We you know we were all we were all you know we were all uh, full time doing the band and getting a wage, a very small wage from the band. Um, but then by ninety six, I think we by ninety five, sorry, we'd probably start to ninety five ninety six around the swing and Roman time. Things went off the boil a lot. Um, and that's when, and that's when we decided, right? You know, we're going to have to. Do we want this? Do, is this too good to give up? Yes. And, and how, we kind of so, how the hell did you get a good record deal? Because it was like, because because we did the album first. Oh, that makes... we were still on at that time. We were still on One Little Indian. Yeah. And and we'd done a couple of albums with One Little Indian, and then. Um, they were a bit disappointed because we'd done Swing and Raymond, Raymond, which was wasn't very good, and we'd done a we'd done a, a book of uh, photographs with an accompanying CD called I Portraits of Anarchists, which didn't sell very well either. Um, so then we went, then we went and recorded um, the Tub Thumper album, took that to One Little Indian and said, right, this is our next album, and they said. It's not good enough. We don't want it. You've either got to go away and re-record, you know, and rewrite it, or we'll get Langer and Win Stanley in to produce it. Classic. We don't like. We we're not keen on it. And we were like, by that point, we'd sort of pulled together as a band, and we really liked that album. Uh, and so we just went right. Well, fuck you. We're going. We're off. And so we just left and they said, yeah, okay, go. And we went, right, we will. We <laughs> and we went. And so we had that album recorded, but we didn't have a record. We didn't have a record deal at all. So then, so this is quite, uh, it, it was quite a, a funny, a funny series of events that led to us um, uh, how, using a couple called Doug Smith and Eve Carr who used to manage Hawkwind and Motorhead, who were sort of friends of friends and became very good friends. Still, you know, we're still friends with them now. Anyway, they were sort of total industry types, are totally industry types. They then sent out like three tracks from the album to loads of people in the industry. And of all the people who heard it, uh, Jonathan King in particular absolutely loved it the tub thumping track so the the jonathan king the jonathan king yeah blimey the jonathan king absolutely loved it and at the time he used to do this thing called the tip sheet which was an industry only magazine 
And on, on every issue of the tip sheet, I think it was fortnightly, they would have a CD that he would give away with the tip sheet. There would be his 20, uh, um, his 20 uh, most popular, uh, the most loved tracks of that week or that fortnight. Anyway, for about two or three issues, he put tub thumping on that CD. And he basically inadvertently uh, enabled us to get, we had about five or six different uh, offers from various labels around the world who wanted to sign us based on listening to that because everybody decided that that song was going to be a hit. Right. God, did it feel like that? Um, well, the Trogs. Yes, the Trogs studio tape. Did it feel like, you know, when you heard it, did you feel like there was fairy dust on that particular song and, and the kind of general vibe of the album? No, not at all. No, it's really weird. We had no idea that that song was, was in any way special because we'd done songs similar to it in the past. And it felt like a bit of a, it felt like a bit of a, um, a, a, a what you call it, like a formula that we followed to yes. write a song. You know, it has like a little singy bit. It has like a little bridge then it has a chanty bit and then it has a little sp spoken word bit. So it had all the elements that we got used to using in songs. Uh, it, it contained all those elements. We were playing that album live before the before the record came out, you know, a long time before it came out. And so we'd go and do shows and people would say, you know that song, you know that I Get Knocked Down song? That one should definitely be the single. You should do that as a single. That's That song will be massive. And we were like, really? Will it? All right, okay. And then, you know, then we'd meet up again and go, yeah, somebody said that that song, I, the, you know, the uh, the... The, the tub thumping song that should be the one that we should put out as a single and then you know and then Jonathan King got a hold of it and then uh, yes. it just just went from there so we had no idea so we didn't have a record deal uh, at the time and so basically we got all these people starting to court us with uh, you know record deals was it the case they had no idea who the band particularly were or any of your history they just heard the single thought yeah oh yeah absolutely. they just thought absolutely. they just saw hit they just, yeah. They heard oh yeah, yeah, completely, completely. Yeah, people had no idea. So when you when you kind of suddenly hit that sort of it wasn't quite high ho silver lining moment. Did your um drug habit just go berserk berserk after that? Um, uh, I I had a problem for a few years, but because not everybody in the band was doing it, it was something that was sort of you know I had to keep I sort of had to keep secret for, in a way. So it wasn't like everybody was absolutely caning it all the time, you know. And so, um, and and also because you know, uh, yeah. I mean, you just you get offered stuff, you know. When you when you when you, what you, you know when when that something something like that happens, people just offer you stuff all the time, I suppose. Yes, and I'm, it became I'm, very easy just to like you know to casually say yes to something. But but, um, obvi but obviously you'd moved up from the squat world to the sort of having a number one in. Oh loads yeah, of, loads of places, and suddenly you think, God, I'm going to much better parties. They have much better drugs. <laughs> yeah, kind, yeah, kind of, yeah. But you know, we were never part of that world, though. We never became part of that, you know, that world. Really, we were sort of always very cynical about it, and 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 because 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 of the way we operated, we were quite, you know, we policed each other in a way. So, so there was a lot of like, um, you know, there was a lot of, you know, self control, and we were very, we were, we were, we had a massive work ethic, you know, about the whole, about the whole thing, everything we were doing. So you, you know, you would have other jobs within the band. So, um, 
you know, whether you were a writer or, you know, like for years I used to just tour. I, we never had a tour manager. I would just tour and manage the band. Um, and somebody else, you know, and, Peter and we would drive ourselves around for years or, you know, or, or we would design, our, we would do all our own, you know, we would design all our own record sleeves and, you know, produce our own records. You know, we did it all ourselves, even through those years of, you know, um, uh, of tub thumping and, and and afterwards we were still making all we were still making all our decisions about the you know and designing everything and yes. um, doing merchandise ourselves and that we never we never sort of had people the people doing it yeah it, it was only when it got really mad that we had to have a tour manager yes and but I then I just couldn't do it anymore because I, there were, I had too many other demands I suppose yeah but then but you the have your was always the drugs was always kind of manageable. Um, it was only it was only like a few years afterwards I just thought this has got this has got um you know this has got too bad and I'm gonna to have to do something about it. In fact I didn't really stop until I had kids, to be honest. Which was two thousand and two. Right. So so was your the next album, which is always gonna be a bit tricky, your Tusk album. Um <laughs> what what you say is what you get. Because you have a bit of a gap and then you bring out a colossally confused album, don't you? Yeah. And it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's Lindsay Buckingham on drugs, isn't it, really? I mean, it's all over the shop. So were you just like going into the studio thinking, let's get marching bands, let's just get... Whatever? I think what happened, how I see it, I don't know whether this is how everybody in the band sees it, how I see it was that we did the Tub Thumper album. We all loved the Tub Thumper album. It did really, really well. Um, everybody was burnt out. You know, a year later, everybody was completely burnt out. Um, people in the band wanted to start having families and stuff, you know, by then, you know, by about 99, you know, we're getting, we're, we're all getting into our late thirties. Um, what, what happened was that we started work on an, on another album, um, that was sort of in the vein of the Tub Thumper album. And then after about a month, we completely scrapped it and people people decided that they wanted to do something completely different. Um, I, I think, but this is just my opinion, I think there was an element of self-sabotage with that album that I think a lot of people in the band had maybe had enough of that level of demands made upon us and having to... Um, to you know, be having to do all this stuff that people didn't particularly enjoy, and I think I think there was an, an element of let's do something that's so fucking different, you know, it'll just it'll just blow people's minds, and we'll never, you know, we'll never have to do that that sort of thing again. In the interim, we had tried to write a, another hit. Uh, we did a song about best around the '98 World Cup. We did a song called Top of the World, yes. which was phenomenally bad. It was like trying so hard to be tub thumping that it was just embarrassing in a way. Um, and that's really easy to see retrospectively. I think at the time we just thought, oh, let's try and write another, let's see if we can write another hit. And we could, and we, and we, and it just, it just never worked. It didn't work. Um, and I think that was like, I think that made us feel a bit sort of dirty in a way. You know, I think we felt soiled by that, that we'd actually tried to do something that was against our nature. Um, 
And so I think the WYSIWYG album, I think, you, I think you're right about the WYSIWYG album, but I think it was, I think there was an element of self-sabotage about it that we just thought, no, let's just do what we want to do. And if this means that we go back to being, you know, a, a small indie band, you know, playing Buckley Tivoli and, you know, um, you know, smaller venues, then so be it. And that's it. And that is exactly what happened. Yeah. You know, but then, uh, but you leave in in oh four, don't you? When the band is still, the band doesn't break up. You you do a bit of a jo- uh, Roger Waters, I suppose, don't you? You sort of leave. I guess you're not hoping the band finishes, but did you just want to walk away from it? Uh, no, it was a lot more calculated than 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 me just leaving. What happened was in 2004. I think we did an album. Oh my God, was it? Um, oh no, Ready Maids. Ready Maids. I think it might have been an album called Ready Maids. Uh, and we said, and we said in that year that we released that album we would do we would say yes to absolutely everything anything that anybody offered us we would say yes to we would do anything to promote that album to see because what had happened is from 2000 from about 99 to 2004 we'd our audiences were dwindling year year by year so we were touring and losing money on the tour but we made enough money to be able to do that so we tour touring was Touring was the one thing that I enjoyed more than anything else, and that was becoming uh, less and less cost-effective, and less and less people were coming to see us as well. So what we did was we released that album, decided that in that year, 2004, we would do whatever it took to promote the album. And if that failed, then me, Alice, Harry and Dambert were all going to leave, and the band was going to carry on as as an acoustic outfit, which part of the band had already started to do you know these acoustic performances and we just we just came to this arrangement that that's what we would do if it went wrong if it didn't work out four of us would leave so at the end of 2004 me alice harry and Dambert all left and then the others carried on in this acoustic band right god did that feel strange yeah yeah it felt totally strange yeah did, it was weird it did was you totally re- weird. did you regret having made that pack thinking shit i wish i hadn't said that um after about a year i did yeah i think at the time i thought at the time um i'd moved to brighton um uh my partner at the time had just had our second child so it was actually good timing for me it was actually really good timing that 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 i could then be at home uh you know in my nice new brighton home with my kids (laughs) So uh, and you know with uh, you know with some financial security it was quite it was a lovely lovely existence. Um, after about a year or so, I thought, shit, I really miss being on a stage. I really miss it. And then I started, um, and then I started working with bands again, but doing documentary stuff. And I just started to really really miss being on a stage then. Yes. My God. So how did you So think- when we left so when I left I thought we all thought it was really pragmatic. It was really pragmatic. And we just thought, yeah, this is we're doing the right thing, you know, for the for the for um because we can't afford to carry on doing this how it how it how it's how it's going. Yeah. So but I did yeah, I re- yeah. I love being on stage. I absolutely love being on stage. I still do love being on stage. So you, yeah. So now it's it's kind of filmmaking and other creative kind of avenues. Yeah, I got another band together. Yeah, 
Yeah. Excellent. Oh, my God. So what would you, just briefly, what would you say to a, an 18-year-old self if you could have just, you know, because you've obviously got decades of, of kind of experience and you think, oh, my God, this is one or two things I would just say, just do or don't do this. Uh, I think I think I would just I think I think all I could imagine saying was just do the thing that you're passionate about. Don't do the thing. Don't do the thing that you think is going to get you to where you wanted to do and you feel uncomfortable about it. I think do the thing that you feel passionate and com- uncomfortable about is is would be would be my thing. The thing that you believe in, because once you start doing something that you don't actually believe in, that's when it starts going wrong. And I think that's what happened with uh, with with Chumbawamba towards the end of my time in there that we that I didn't have the same passion for it and I think once you lose that passion for it and you don't believe in it 100% then I think I think you're done for yes and did you because because I did an interview bizarrely I love Motorhead with Fast Eddie and he obviously left after the third album in a bit of a difficult way I mean, oh. I often wonder what it must have felt like seeing the band still going on for the rest of his life. I mean, how did you feel when you kept thinking, oh, a new album? And did you did you think, oh, fuck, I don't want to listen to it, or oh, I better listen? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I couldn't go and see them. Yeah, I'd listen to the... I'd, I'd, yeah, I stopped listening to anything that they did, and I didn't go and see them. Uh, it took me years before I actually went... Uh, before I saw them that I felt comfortable enough to go and see them, and it was after quite a few years... Uh, that I went to a gig and it still felt awkward and weird it still didn't feel right um and uh I, I mean in a way I suppose what was what was lucky for me is that they went then went off in a musical direction that was of no interest to me whatsoever so so it wasn't that they were doing something that I thought oh I wish I was a part of that because they were doing something that I couldn't have been a part of anyway because it involved like four or five part harmonies and stuff so it wasn't my bag anyway. So that that was that was some relief for me, I suppose, in a way. Yeah. But it was the fact that they were, um, you know, they were still Chumbawamba that felt weird, you know, and 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 um, and that that didn't represent me anymore. It was it was strange. So it's weird. What's, I'll tell you what's interesting is that, you know, I'm making a documentary about Chumbawamba at the moment. Yes, because we do, I have to confess, we do have a VHS cassette of a documentary that was made probably... Oh, yeah, the Well Done Now Sod Off. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Which is now yeah. on VHS. So I was involved in making that with Ben Unwin, and now I'm making, I'm, making another, I'm making another film that's more about... Well, it's more about my journey rather than Chumbawamba, but it includes all of Chumbawamba's story within it. Um... And, and 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 so that that stops. That's st- for me. That stops at the end of two thousand and four, obviously, because the acoustic Chumbawamba was nothing to do with me. So it's not really, it's not really the story of Chumbawamba in a way. It's the story of Dunstan Bruce, who was in Chumbawamba. If you see what I mean. Yes. Um. Um. But but you, but yeah. So my my emotional attachment to the band was you know was um changed somewhat because of because they were doing something that that were that was wasn't my sort of thing anyway yeah were you slightly were you slightly relieved in that kind of i'm not comparing you to roger waters but were you kind of relieved relieved that they didn't do something that was like oh shit it's really been it's really massive they've gone yeah of course i was (laughs) of course i was i would be an absolute liar if i didn't say that i was yeah yeah yeah. it's a focus I tell you what, I was really happy that they found a, neat, a, a, a sort of a, they found a new audience basically. They found a new niche for the band, and I thought I, I thought they did that really, really skillfully. And I, I thought that was really good how they found, you know they 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 did with the thing that they wanted to do as as a band, 
and they found an audience for it. And I thought that was brilliant. Um, yeah, if they'd been if they'd been huge, if you know, if that had been something, you know, the way they'd had a, something that was a bigger hit than Tub Thumping, I think I would have been. I would have felt really strange about it. Yeah. Yes, God. Yes. Yeah. I, I can't. I couldn't deny that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally couldn't deny that. Are you? Are the members of the band? Are you sort of all kind of come? You know, do you send Christmas cards to each other still? And <laughs> yeah, know? we do actually. <laughs> well, that's quite sweet. We still it? see a lot of each other. Yeah, because one thing, in a way, as a fan, you never really want a band to reform. But it's quite nice to know they vaguely like each other. You know. Well, when I formed, when I when I got this new band together called Interrobang, um, it was with a friend of mine. Do you remember a band from London called Regular Fries? No. It was sort of like a sort of baggy late 90s um you know a uh, uh, journalist friendly band you know press used to love them um they never did anything enormous but they did loads of, they did quite a few years of touring and that and um they they were like on the on the back of all that um uh, campeg valisette bands oh. like that do you remember them? Vaguely, but not... No, not... They were sort of like, it was like this sort of whole London um, druggy, um, you know, post-baggy, post-Britbop sort of thing. Um, anyway, Griff played guitar in them, and uh, me, and him, me and him formed uh, Interrobang together. I said, look, I've been writing. I started writing again when I was about 50, and I was like, oh, look, I've written all this stuff. And he said, look, I can do the music for that. And so we got together and formed this band. Uh, and then uh, we didn't really have a drummer. And so I asked Harry, who I said to Griff, look, before we try and find another, uh, you know, a proper drummer, can I just ask Harry if he'll do it? I don't know whether he could. And, you know, Harry was the drummer in Chumbawamba, obviously. Um, so I asked him and he said, yeah, I'd love to. So it was just brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant. Having been in a band with Harry again. Yes. Really, it just felt really lovely. I really like that film and that uh, that feeling, and then you and you know then other then then Alice and Lou would come and see in Terabang and say how much they loved it, and that just felt that felt brilliant. You know that was like it almost felt as though that was the all the only affirmation that I wanted really was from my peers that what I was doing was you know this new thing I was doing they they loved. Yeah. So that felt really good, and it felt really good working with Harry again. It felt like. God, I know how to do, you know, like, having not been in a band for years, it felt like, oh, I know how to do this. This is the thing I know. I know how to perform on stage. I know how to, you know, be around people on tour and all that sort of thing. So it was really enjoyable. Yeah. Years, yeah, we had a really good time with that. Excellent. Well, Dunce, well, thank you ever so much for this. So when I put this out, I'll send you a link as well. Oh, so yeah. you can you can always use it again or, or read yeah, it. Yeah. Or, but that would be great. But thank you ever so much for your time. That's been an amazing story. That's fine, man. And, I uh, loved it. I loved you. I loved your quite I loved your um what's the word? Your um uh, your view on on what we did and what I did—it's really it, it was really refreshing and interesting. That, like, yeah. <laughs> and 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 really, you were you were you were spot on. You were spot on with what was going on. I think over the years. Yes, it's a it's yeah. a funny old world, isn't it? Anyway, look, thank you ever so much. I'll keep in touch. But all, all right, the best yes, for the do. for the best of the, for the year, which is bizarre as, as it is, yeah. isn't it? Anyway, take care. Okay, cheers, Dave. Cheers. Bye bye. Okay, bye. bye.